we acknowledge the Wajok people and the wider Noongar community uh, on whose country uh, we perform our ceremonies and do our Sazen uh, tonight. Buja speaks through us, uh, as us, and uh, is our activity itself. Uh, tonight's uh, talk is called The Way of Envy. Uh, it's the first of a series of talks I want to do on the, the Zen and the Passions. Please sit uh, comfortably within the limit of your mat. Uh, who of us has not felt the torment of envy? torment when we learn the success of friends or colleagues or rivals or fellow Sangha members or even family. Uh, envy is one of the great passions uh, and it is a stark reminder that we don't choose our passions, that they choose us. Who would choose to be touched, caught, and consumed by envy. To be unable to endure the success or happiness of others, especially our friends, is a miserable business. To be so wounded, so debilitated by the good fortune of our rivals is almost too shameful to be talked about. We rightly fear the invasion of envy. It can paralyse our love and creativity, making us a prey to sickening fantasies. In envy's deepest, most pathological forms, we willingly derail and subvert our own life if only we could subvert another's success. Envy makes us feel shameful and ashamed, absurd, grotesque, ridiculous. Envy within Christianity is considered to be one of the seven deadly sins, keeping company with pride, covetousness, lust, anger, gluttony and sloth. For in the classical tradition for Hesiod in the 8th century BC, envy was one of the brood of night, uh, born from the union of chaos and night. In this brood, envy was brother to doom, old age, sleep, death, strife, lamentation, destiny, deceit, dreams and others like continence and murder. So envy has long had a secure home in our cultural underworld. Joseph Losey's film Accident uh, from 1967 and Andrew Brown's film Prick Up Your Ears from 1987 are compelling studies of envy and its power to destroy relationships, initiate desperate misfortune, and in the case of prick up your ears, lead to murder. The artist Monke 
uh, Arthur Hallowell, deranged by envy, kills his lover, Joe Orton, just as Orton is coming into his own as a playwright. Desperate stuff. A friend of mine, a psychotherapist, tells me he has patients who refuse to acknowledge any recovery because their own envy of him is so strong they want to deny him the pleasure of a therapeutic success. An old Jewish story hinges upon the words, Lord, let me be blinded in one eye, if only he is blinded in both. Envy, in its extreme forms, aims at the defacement of the other, uh, even at their complete destruction, even if the one who envies is destroyed in the process. Envy also secretes hatred and rancour and is commonly the source and deep fuel of grudges and vendettas. Um, this is a very big, extreme picture of envy and all of its pathological well, not all of them, a couple of its pathological uh, aspects. But, you know, how does envy appear in your life? I, mean, I think most of our experiences, perhaps not, not so out of the, those extremes. Uh, it's interesting. I suspect we, and none of us are immune. We speak of being touched by envy. Uh, touched means what it says, but also suggests that envy can make us a little crazy. Envy can also be a form of possession, so much so that even when we find out that, uh, that those we envy are not as powerful or blessed as we thought, even when we learn of their catastrophes, we can still remain uh, envious. It's very strange. The poet Longfellow reasonably suggested if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility and, we might suggest, all envy. But envy is curiously immune to reason. Um, envy seems to be linked to the inability of the soul to see what's close what belongs to it and what's valuable about our life. When this occurs, we're captured by something outside of ourselves. We're enthralled to some fantasy vision of lives into which we lean and about which we often know next to nothing. At such a time, uh, we're the prisoner of another. When this occurs, we're rendered alien to our own power and richness. Um, the richness of what lies uh, close to hand. I'm reminded of the old sun. I've got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. Uh, this, this. Yeah. This, the envious self is kind of uh, negated to almost a zero. Uh, um, and yet, uh, the vastness of true self. Uh, if you're unconvinced about that, listen, listen. In envy, we find ourselves spellbound, uh, yet 
poverty-stricken. We're not going to achieve any of our goals. We'll always be left behind. Others will always surpass us. We will never measure up. I think this not measuring up is kind of often an important component uh, in envy. Um, I think probably one of the most common expressions that I think all of us, in a way, that, that sense that somehow, as a result of our upbringing or social conditioning, that sense of never measuring up seems to be really uh, an important theme for many people. So we take on a, a, an impossibly um, steep spiritual path, um, as if to reinforce that. But by taking up the path of sin, the not measuring up uh, tends to become very transparent uh, indeed. Uh, not measuring up to exactly what. Where is the deficiency? Where is the lack? Sharon Salzberg, in her book, wonderful book, called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, uh, talks of her experience of envy in the early years of her meditation practice. She spent a lot of time struggling with sleepiness, distraction, and inability to stay with her practice. Eventually, she would sneak a look around the dojo to see what other people were doing. And they were all sitting there so serenely, every one of them looking so deep. Obviously, these people must be deeply enlightened or to be about to experience deep enlightenment. And she felt incredible envy. She was struggling to stay awake, and here she was, surrounded by great meditators and enlightened beings. She felt like a child with her nose pressed against the window of the bakery, looking at the goodies through the window but unable to have them. However, sometime later when she talked to these people, she found out that they were experiencing the same things that she was experiencing. And she was so heartened uh, to learn of this. In a way, I think a lot of us have our nose pressed against the window of the good life as it's presented through advertising uh, and in myriad other ways on the internet and through the media generally. Um, I think a lot of advertising and promotion depends on the creation of, uh, uh, of envy, of uh, lack, of uh, things we really should have in our life if we're to be truly happy. You know, we can get a taste of realisation. It doesn't mean that we are then all of a sudden immune uh, from passions, uh, like envy, uh, for instance. And I remember a 
in the early days, returning to my family after a particularly deep and fruitful session. Uh, I'd brought Amanda and Julie in kites, and all of us, together with a close friend, went up to a local park to fly them. Amanda and Julian couldn't get theirs to fly, and when I came to their assistance, I, I couldn't get the kites to fly either. But there was my friend running backwards, the strings of both kites taut in his hand, and both kites stretched fully open, red and gold against the huge West Australian summer sky. And in my envy, I simply hated him, all thoughts of realisation completely out the window. So, you know, <laughs> that's a very good thing, I think, all thoughts of realisation completely out the window, but I can still remember the pain uh, itself uh, of that. I think that uh, uh, one practices for many years and uh, still one experiences, uh, but differently, I think, over time, um, passions such as envy. Here's an old story, um, a story of envy within uh, a Zen context. Um, this is the story of um, uh, Kui Shan, who was cook in Pa Chang's uh, assembly. And uh, Pa Chang wanted to establish a new temple. And, uh, He'd uh, sent a geomancer um, who understood, um, you know, the proper disposition of where the light was coming from and wind and the rocks on the, the mountain. And the geomancer had come back and said, look, I've got just the ideal place. It's, uh, it, I think it'd be great for your temple. And Pai um, Chang said, well, that, uh, you know, describe it. That sounds really great. I'd love to do it myself. And he said, but uh, no, no, you can't do it. You're far too old uh, to do it. It will need someone young and vigorous to, uh, to do this. So it was decided that there would be a, um, uh, a little test of realisation uh, set up. And uh, Pai Chung, uh, the teacher, the old teacher, um, set up a water bottle and... Um, where he says he, he invited all his monks to make a presentation saying the outstanding one will be sent. And he took the water bottle, set it on the floor and said, don't call this a water bottle. What would you call it? And Hua Lin, the head monk, said, it can't be called a wooden clog. Pai Chang then asked, Kui Shan, who was the cook of the monastery, his opinion. Kui Shan walked over, kicked over the water bottle and walked out. Um, pai Chang laughed and said, the head monk loses. And Kui Shan, the cook, was made, uh, Tenzo was made head teacher at this new monastery at Mount uh, Darkway. Aiken Roshi asks um, in his commentary on this case, 
Suppose that you were Hua Ling, the head monk. What would you say in response to Pai Chang's judgment? The head monk loses. Head monks have a terrible time in the history of Zen. Um, they are the butt of so much humour. They are always being surpassed by beginners. Uh, well, in this case, the cook is no beginner, but, you know, people who are lower down. It's an administrative role, and I think that uh, it was a very, very difficult role. So many other people actually became teachers, and head monks often didn't. So it's a long history behind all of this. Um, but Ekin Roshi asks, how would you, if you were the head monk, how would you respond to Pai Chang's judgment, the head monk loses? Would sympathetic joy characterise your words and manner? Could you clap your hands and call out, congratulations, congratulations? I think I'd have some difficulty with this one. And I suspect that Hua Lin uh, may have had to. Let's imagine that he felt deeply envious of Shan and that he took deep offence at Pai Chang's words and laughter. The whole matter set fire to his complacency and seared his heart. His fall into envy and the resulting shame and humiliation was made worse for him because Pai Chang had once suggested that he might be the founding teacher at Mount Dagui. He now felt abandoned and betrayed and because he was a sincere student, deeply ashamed by the invasion of these ancient infantile feelings. Because as head monk he had become attached to the eros of power, of being looked up to by the junior monks and being close to his teacher, he experienced his envious, angry feelings as a profound fall from grace. He felt as though he had been cast into the outer darkness, better to die than to take the brunt of such envy and hatred, but if that were not possible, at least to retire to the mountains. There he would be far away from the solicitations and knowing smiles of the junior monks and Pai Chang's penetrating questions concerning his feeling about Guishan's appointment. And he wouldn't have to listen to the endless rehashing of Guishan's kicking over the water bottle and the celebratory verse, the invidious comparisons between the brilliance of Guishan's Dharma eye and the lacklusterness of his own. Better to withdraw and to live alone than to face this. So, I tried to photocopy this onto A3 because I can't read anything smaller than 16 or 18 point stuff. It means the manuscripts keep getting bigger and bigger. Uh, Hua Lin built his hermitage deep in the mountains and the hard physical work in extreme heat and cold gave him some respite from the savage and debilitating emotions that he was feeling. Yet after he had settled in and began to sit long hours of devoted zazen, the corrosive envy and burning resentments returned. Don't you know this when you're doing hard work and you've got a lot of emotional stuff happening as well? At least for a time, it seems to, the work makes it worse. Uh, the physical discomfort uh, adds to it until such time as the, f 
the physical work actually begins to change and it begins to change the feeling. But at least in my very slight experience of physical work, there is a stage when it seems to reinforce the emotional um, turmoil. Um, in other words, it gets worse before it gets better. But I'll be interested to hear your views on this. And, uh, yeah, the corrosive envy and burning resentments returned. And because he was high-minded, he struggled with these, thinking, I should be better than this. I should be beyond this. And this doubled his agony. A wandering monk brought him news that Kweishan was having trouble establishing the new monastery at Mount Dagwe. It was in remote country, and few monks were prepared to make the arduous journey there. Yet this news of Kweishan's difficulties did nothing to ease the profound envy that he felt. In fact, the report is that Guishan in the new monastery said, I sat there for nine years talking to monkeys, basically. I mean, he wasn't being abusive about monks. That was, he was talking about there was nothing there but the monkeys. So this news of Guishan's difficulties did nothing to ease the profound envy that he felt. Even the complete abandonment of the Mount Dagway project wouldn't have helped that. One night, sitting late and trying to practice sympathetic joy for Guishan, with Pai Chang's words reverberating in his ear and burning ears and burning in his heart, he suddenly heard them as if for the first time. Remember the words, the head monk loses. It was like, yeah, he suddenly heard the head monk loses, is no longer directed at him, uh, no life, longer circumscribing his life as abject and infantile. It was just uh, the head monk loses, just that. Uh, like a pillar of fire or a great wave crashing on the beach like clouds silvered by moonlight just visible through the back window of his hermitage. He wept and made bows in the direction of Pai Chang's monastery and then in the cool vastness of his relief he made bows in the direction of Mount Gakwe. This opening in the midst of his struggle brought deep changes to his life. Legend has it that he had been feeding two abandoned tigers he would leave out meat for them, which they would grab and then retreat back into the wilderness of rock and pine. But he couldn't get close to them or tame them. Now they came to him readily and took food from his hands. And sitting regally behind his hermitage, obedient to his call, they guarded him against the other marauding beasts. He felt that his companionship with them was somehow linked to the vastness that had opened for him when he truly experienced Pai Chung's words on that memorable night. So he named the two tigers Big Void and Small Void. As the years passed and Hua Lin enjoyed his life as a hermit on the trackless secluded mountain, his reputation grew and many people came to pay their respects and to receive his teachings. Robert Aitken tells a lovely story about Hualin and his tigers, which shows the boundless equanimity of mature practice. 
one day a high official called upon Kwa Lin and remarked, it must be very inconvenient to live by yourself in this way without an attendant. Kwa Lin said, not at all, for I have two attendants. Turning his head, he called out, big void, small void. In reply to his call, two tigers appeared from the back of the hermitage, roaring fiercely. The high official was frightened out of his wits. Hualin spoke to the tigers, saying, This is an important guest. Be quiet and courteous. The two tigers crouched at his feet and were as gentle as kittens. All I would add to this fine commentary is that in Huilin's great heart, fierceness and gentleness lay down together. This is the outcome and fruit of long struggle to come to terms with profound envies, a long night journey with humiliation of allowing his envy-driven rage to become conscious. With glacial slowness, the lower layers of his grief began to break up. Such movement, glimpsed, touched, included, was deeply painful but ultimately releasing. It's also the fruit of his slow embodiment and maturation of the vastness. It's moonlight revealing by degrees the sheer juts and dark falls of his inner life. After such a journey, we emerge blinking in the sunlight and find that the tigers come at our bidding and enjoy our company. They get all the jokes and know exactly what to do to make a terrified politician feel completely at home.